Christ the Lord. Christ jury, or just before he starts, uh, firstly it is baptism. There's a declaration from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Miracles and healings followed, casting out demons, calming the storm, commissioning the 12 apostles with power and authority to proclaim the kingdom of God and to do the very things that Jesus had been doing. And last week we had the account of the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, all pointing to who Jesus is. In John's Gospel, Jesus' miracles are called signs. They're called signs, meaning that whilst they had value in themselves, obviously demonstrating the love and compassion of God, their major role was as a signpost pointing to and revealing who Jesus is. So that the disciples now, who once cried out in the boat on, in the storm, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him, now say, we get it, we get it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that, in saying that, um, that encompassed the fact that they were expecting a Messiah. And this was the Messiah, Israel's promised deliverer, the hope of the nation, to answer the answer to all their longings. And this was not their reasoned deduction. But as Jesus said, told Peter, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. They didn't work it out for themselves. God revealed that to them, a mighty revelation. And he went on to say, as we read in Matthew's account, that this con confession would be the foundation of the church, who Jesus is. And there's a natural flow from this comprehensive testimony to Jesus' true identity to his calling people to follow him. Not only has he the right to call people to costly discipleship, but he has the power and authority to ensure the outcome, to ensure that the church is built and the kingdom of darkness is plundered. I'm just speculating here, but at this point, the disciples must have been on a high. You can imagine how their minds must have raced, thinking of scenarios of what was to come, and to cap it all, they were his special friends. He'd chosen them to be with him. There would be a landslide. Jesus declared king over Israel, free of Roman dominance. Then Jesus pricks their balloon or their bubble as he first commands them not to tell anyone, tell anyone who he is. And then he explains that he's on the way to suffering and death and what it will mean for those who follow him. Sometimes when I've been sharing the gospel with people and they're struggling to believe that it's all true, that Jesus is all that we say he is, I recommend that they read through the gospels and ask themselves the question, who is this Jesus that I'm reading about? And even if they dare to pray, asking God to show them who he is, because he is revealed in the scriptures, God through the Holy Spirit, will reveal who Jesus is. Because until they're convinced as to who he is, there will be no faith to trust him and to follow him. David recently reminded us that um, whenever we serve Jesus as part of his church, from the smallest to the greatest of things, we are on a mission. You remember that? David talking about being on a mission. In our passage today, Jesus tells us that his mission would be characterised by suffering and sacrifice, not just by himself, but by those who would join him in the revolution. 
So we'll read our passage for today. It's Luke 9, 22 to 27. That's a verse before that was announced in the update this week. So I'm starting with verse 27 because it kind of... Um, sorry, verse 22 because it, it sets the scene. So Luke 9, 22. Jesus saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then verse 23, and he said to, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So I'm starting in verse 23. And he said to all. So who are the all? Well, Jesus had clearly been spending a lot of time and conversing uh, with the twelve, but there were others who followed him around that were sometimes referred to as disciples. And I think this is very important because there might be a temptation to let ourselves off the hook and claim that these challenging commands were just for the twelve. But he reinforces his first point, and he said to all by saying, if anyone would come after me. As they say, there's no wriggle room. We are in or we're out. We're either following Jesus or we're not. And he continues, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To come after Jesus is to accept him as Lord, to accept all he taught concerning the kingdom of God and be a bearer of the good news of the gospel in a hostile world. Jesus links self-denial with taking up our cross, a term that's not readily understood in our age and culture. But in first century Palestine, thousands of people were crucified by the Romans, criminals, Jews, and later Christians. The major roads were lined with victims on crosses. You get a flavor of this if you've seen the film Spartacus, and um, that's quite graphic there. It was therefore a common sight to see a, a victim carry his cross to the place of execution. For them, it wasn't a matter of choice. It was imposed on them. But Jesus changes the metaphor, the metaphor of the cross. And it's now a matter of choice. He says, you choose to take it up. Unfortunately, in modern speech, um, you hear people say when describing some misfortune that has befallen them, um, like perhaps a tiresome mother-in-law. Um, uh, this is just the cross I have to bear. Let me say right away, my mother-in-law was great. And, and many of you remember her. But it's one of the things that people say, don't they? But it isn't something imposed. It's something that you choose. Here it's a choice, and it's something that will cost us in following Jesus. And of course, Jesus led the way. He chose the cross. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He submitted to the authorities. He submitted himself to the cross for us. 
Whilst the word, this word is for all, as we have seen, who will follow him, it is most likely that Jesus had persecution in mind, which would have been an, an inevitable outcome of taking the gospel of light into a dark world. There would be a clash of kingdoms, and we've seen that throughout church history. The call to take up your cross was, in effect, a call to die. Firstly, in life, by denying yourself, and maybe in death, at the enemies of the uh, at the enemies of the hands of the enemies of the gospel, and Jesus spelt this out on a number of occasions. I'll just read two of them for you. First, first example is Luke twenty-one verse twelve. He says, "Before all this, and that's before all the signs of the end of the age, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues to put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors." and all on account of my name. And then in John 15, 20, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And this began to happen right from the birth of the church, didn't it? We read about it in the early chapters of Acts. As the apostles preached Jesus on the streets and in the marketplace, they were opposed by the Jewish authorities, beaten and imprisoned. Later, Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 10, he says this, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. A bit sobering, that, isn't it? Will be persecuted. But what about today? Well, according to a recent report, there are around 245 million um, Christians today um, who are persecuted for their faith. This persecution varies from social exclusion in one end, at one end to imprisonment, torture and death. At the other, Bob pointed out that their choices are stark and perhaps to our minds absolutely terrifying. And they are faced with this daily. When people in these situations choose to follow Jesus, choose to take up their cross, in many cases they know it will cost them dearly. They know it may cost them their livelihood, it may cost them their family and even their life. And frankly, I'm in awe of these people that they choose Jesus. In the face of all that, they choose Jesus. Wonderful. In times past, there have been those who left the security of these shores to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the world. The mid to late 19th century saw hundreds, if not thousands, go to places like China and India. And many saw it as a life's commitment, not expecting to return. And amazingly, as reports reached here of many of them losing their lives for the sake of Christ, far from dampening the missionary spirit, fresh waves of new recruits volunteer to go. We will put these people alongside the heroes of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. Just cast your mind back. Can you remember when you were saved? When you first decided to follow Jesus? Did anyone spell out for you the likely cost 
of following Jesus. The laying down of your life and the possibility of making the ultimate sacrifice. I'm sure nobody said that to me, either because the likelihood of me losing my life for the sake of Jesus was quite remote in our culture, or for fear of putting me off. Um, would it have put me off if they had said that? I'm not sure and read this scripture to me. Let's be honest, for us in the UK, along with many Christians around the world, particularly in the Western world, we are very unlikely to be faced with such stark choices. Not at the moment, anyway. Frankly, the church can become one of the comforts we enjoy. We're meeting together for worship, fellowship, and other activities in full public view poses no threat to us. And we can be lulled into thinking that this is all there is. If persecution is still a reality for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, and it is what Jesus said we should expect, why not us? Why, not, what, why are not we facing persecution? I think it's unlikely it's because we're hiding the fact that we're Christians, because by and large, we don't have to, do we? We don't have to hide the fact. It's most likely because we've grown up in a Christianized nation, uh, because by and large, we, we, the, uh, the, most of our laws were based on the Bible, and church-going and other Christian activities were, and still are, considered to be part of the fabric of society. As an example, last Saturday during the Festival of Remembrance in the Albert Hall, there was clear Christian content, which is enshrined in that annual event. And the next day, all over the country, outside cenotaphs and things, there would be Christian content in the Remembrance Day services. So, with all this in mind, and with us not facing the stark reality of persecution, we may subconsciously again let ourselves off the hook. And I think probably I have. Uh, but clearly, Jesus does not. There are not different classes of Christians, namely the everyday run-of-the-mill Christians like us, and the superheroes such as the pioneer missionaries. However, our discipleship will be very different to those who are suffering persecution, but it should be no less real and involve daily choices. We're not invited to join a club of like-minded people, but follow after and share in the lifestyle of our founder. Who, um, sorry, who is not just the forerunner of the glorious resurrection that he promises those uh, who are his, but also the forerunner of the sacrifice necessary to make the kingdom of God a reality in our world today. Right, we continue in the passage, verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And I think earlier versions said, lose his own soul. When we become a Christian, when we are born again, there is always the need for repentance. If you remember, these were the first words that Jesus spoke as he began his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's always a need for change. This is because, as Paul said to the Colossians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then to the Ephesians he says, for at one time you were darkness, 
but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We've been transferred from one kingdom to another, and there will be changes that have to take place. Our baptism signified that we had died to our old life and been raised to new life. Therefore, there will be things that we need to let go of and a new lifestyle to embrace. Some relationships will not be appropriate. Some habits will need to be broken. There will be a need for a re-evaluation of the place of money and possessions in our lives. And especially today, an acceptance of the biblical understanding of human sexuality and marriage. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of all, and there's no limit to what he may ask of us. For example, he may call us to be part of a church plant in a location, in a place that will be the last place we would like to live. He may call us to full-time Christian service, which entails giving up a promising career. We may feel it right to turn down an offer of marriage to someone we love very much because they are not a believer. But Jesus says in our scripture today, if we compromise, if we cling to what he calls us to let go of, in the end, we are the losers. One of the most memorable sayings, and some of you will know this, on this subject comes from Jim Elliot, who at the age of 28 was one of the five American missionaries who in 1956 was martyred in the Ecuadorian jungle by the Alca Indians they were seeking to evangelize. This is his saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think that's so profound. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this, of course, was not the end. The wives of these missionaries went back into the jungle and this tribe were converted. And one of those Indians that were converted who had been responsible for the death of those missionaries baptized one of their children. So uh, um, amazing redemptive activity. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This clearly relates to those who are undergoing persecution and are forced to de declare their allegiance to Jesus or renounce their faith, something that Bob talked about a couple of weeks ago. For us, the challenge is more the challenges are more subtle. Like finding ourselves in a new situation with a new group of people, like a new job, and knowing how to express our faith in the workplace, how to give a good testimony. Or young people who in school want so much to be accepted by their peers, and yet knowing they should make a stand for Jesus and refuse to go with the crowd. And I'm sure you can think of other situations. Jesus said that we are to let our light, the light that he has given us, shine before men, that we may glorify our Heavenly Father. And um, that will be in speech and in good deeds, in acts of mercy and standing up for righteousness. The overall expectation from Scripture is that our righteousness may result in hostility from the world. And Peter gives us some good advice here. This is 1 Peter 3, verse 14. 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So let us be zealous for good works. Let us live as those who have a hope that is beyond this life and not as this world does, uh, who act as if this is all there is. And pray that people will ask us, why aren't you complaining like everybody else? Why do you clearly have hope in a hopeless world? What is it about you that's different? Then we will not be ashamed of Jesus, but confess him as Lord. And then the last verse we're considering, verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Commentators are not agreed as to what is meant here. My commentary says there are seven possible explanations. You'll be pleased to know I'm not going to give you seven explanations. One of those, I think it is, anyway, this is my take on it, where whenever the gospel is preached and people are saved through faith in Jesus, by the grace of God, then the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is manifest. When people declare that Jesus is Lord. And this is what we read about in the Acts of the Apostles. And some of those who were standing there with Jesus that he was speaking to were to witness this as the church spread throughout the known world. I want to close by making a, a, a very important point. Uh, we've seen that to, uh, the call to follow Jesus is a call to a radical lifestyle. Uh, it's a call to die to self and to give yourself uh, to whatever uh, the cost. But there have, have been other causes that have demanded such commitment. If you think about communism for one, um, radical Islam for another, where even today devotees are clearly willing to die for the cause. So what's the difference? What's the difference between that and what Jesus is calling us to? Well, the difference is that Jesus does not uh, leave us to go it alone. Uh, he goes with us. When Jesus gave the disciples what we call the Great Commission... Uh, in Matthew 28, he knew that in sending them into the world to make disciples, they would face hostility and that daily they would need to take up their cross. History has it that all of the 12 died martyrs' deaths. But he said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. There may be times when the cost of following Jesus will seem too hard, too much to bear. But Jesus knows that we are weak. But because we belong to him, he is there to lift us. And he says this, not to the world, not to anyone, but to those who are his. He says to his own, to you and me, and I'll close with this, come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, while we were your enemies, you sent your wonderful Son to us, who did not shrink from the horror of the cross, but embraced it for us. As we look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, our founder, give us courage when we struggle and the road seems hard. Keep reminding us that you are with us and that your love will never fail and that your grace which saved us will be sufficient for every challenge, for every trial, until we arrive safely home to the praise of your glory. Amen. Thank you.